0: I don't know if you guys saw that it says lunch is provided after the service so stick around um, good morning or good afternoon and let me just this thing is like right in my face let me uh, <laughs> let me take a moment to introduce myself my name is sam i've i've been here before and um i was uh, privileged to be with you at the retreat but I also just wanted to let you know that I will be part of this ministry for the next few months, uh, and I'm delighted to be here. And one of the things that I would love to do is get to know all of you um, on a personal basis, kind of hear your story, what God is doing in your life, how God has called you, and how you, how you have responded to the call. And so um, in the next few months, I would love to uh, you know, grab food, lunch, dinner, breakfast, coffee, uh, whatever works. I'd uh, love to set up a time, so please do expect an email or a text message in the next few months. I'd love to get to know you all. One of the things I just also want to say is that as your your ministry here, uh, THMCEM, is going through a season of transition, um, I did... I. I trying my best to make it as smooth as possible. So I even kept the same name as your previous pastor, just so that, so that you don't have to learn a new pastor's name, right? So just, you know, if you forget, it's, it's the same name as the person who was here for the last year. But uh, as you're going through transition, it's a time of discernment. It's a time of trying to identify, trying to discern who we are as a church, as a ministry, as a congregation. And it's not just that's not just the role of the leaders. It's really for everyone who, who calls this ministry or this church their home because you are part of the body. You are the church. And so what I would love to do in these next few months is to begin to help think about the kinds of church, kind of church that God is calling you to be and to present to you some of the things that I believe will help you um, in this process. One of the things that I want to begin with today is we are two weeks away from Easter Sunday, and for most of us, uh, for most of us, Easter Sunday is you know is one of the two big Sundays of the year, right? The other one being. No. you know the you know the old jo- old joke for the nominal Christians who go to church twice a year. When do they usually go? Yeah, Christmas and Easter, the two two pillars. The two pillars of, uh, of the church, the holidays of the church, or, or days that we recognize. And both of these days are very special in the Christian calendar, and so they are preceded by a season of preparation. We don't just go to Easter on Easter Sunday and say, well, hey, it's Easter, let's celebrate. Or we don't just go to Christmas and say, it's Christmas, let's celebrate. There's a season called Advent before Christmas, and there's a season called Lent before Easter. It's a time for us as believers to prepare our hearts, to prepare our minds, to reorganize and reprioritize our lives so that we can receive the good news of the resurrection on Easter Sunday to the full extent that God wants to bless us. So it's a preparatory season. So I want to share with you a message today on the prodigal son. The parable, I call it the parable of the father and the two sons. It's one of Jesus' most well known parables. And I just want to touch on a very simple theme for you today in, with twofold purpose. One, that we get in the mindset of preparing ourselves for this coming um, Palm Sunday for um, Passion Week, Holy Week, and for Easter Sunday, but also to start beginning to ask ourselves, what is important for us as a church? What is important for me as a believer? What is it, what, and the most important question that I want to kind of hit at today is, what is important to God? What does God care about? And how do I align myself with what God is caring about, what God is passionate about? So that's my desire for you today, and... um, We'll, we'll go from there. Let's, let's bow our heads in prayer and begin. Father, we know that you love us. We know that you give us your word that we may know you and know you and to love you and to worship you. But Father, we also know that the state of our heart has so much to do with how this word bears fruit in our life. And that the word, as powerful and effective as it is, if it falls on hardened soils or shallow soil or thorny soils, we know that sometimes it doesn't bear the fruit that you want it to bear. So Lord, right now I pray that you would, through your spirit, just soften our hearts, that you would till the ground of our hearts, that you will remove the hardness, the stubbornness, the unwillingness to submit, to honor you as God, to worship you. Those things that would get in our ways, uh, the worries of life. I pray, O God, that through your spirit, you would just now prepare our hearts to receive your word and that your word would bear fruit in our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage. Uh, it comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. 1 through 3 sets the context for the message, and then the parable proper is verses 11 through 32. Now, in between verses 3 and 11 are two additional parables, two shorter parables, and we'll reference them, but the parable that we want to look at is um, often known as the parable of the prodigal son, and it begins in verse 11. So I'll read that passage together with the opening verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received them back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. I actually should have prayed now (laughs) after I read the text. But the introduction kind of confused me. So hopefully things will be smoother in the coming weeks. Imagine just for a moment that you are living in Jesus' day. And you hear that Jesus is coming into your town. And he was going to teach. So you take time off or you mark on your calendar. And you're ready to go and hear Jesus. And you go to a nondescript house perhaps as dusk, the evening meal had just been served, and you go in to hear this rabbi, this amazing teacher that everyone is talking about, and you go into that house, and you notice right away Jesus sitting at the table, ready to teach. But you also notice there are two distinct groups clustered around Jesus. The first group are the people you don't see too often in society. These are the ones that don't hang around the synagogue. These aren't the ones who are respected in their community. You notice that there are tax collectors. More than just IRS agents, tax collectors who are known as collaborators, complicit with the oppressors, the Roman Empire, for oppressing God's people, tax collectors who bought their position and used that position to charge whatever they wanted to, fatten their own wallets. Despised, opportunistic. There they were, the tax collectors. And sitting next to them are the sinners, the lawbreakers, those who have been known To have broken the laws of God. And therefore were shunned. They're the harlots. The whores. Who don't usually come out in daylight. That you don't see too often. Because they do their trade in shame and in secrecy. They're they're the extortioners. They're the, the maimed and the disabled. A sure sign that they're cursed. Because they must have done something terribly sinful. And therefore... They are living as they are, with broken bodies and disabilities. So the thinking goes at the time. And so you see all these people, and they are near Jesus. They're clustered around him like a moth to a flame. They just are eager, and for some reason, These people who never go to the synagogue, who never show themselves before the religious leaders, who are always ashamed and who always kind of keep their distance. For some reason, they are all drawn to Jesus. And verse 1 tells us they gathered around him to hear him. There's something about Jesus that tells them that they're welcome. And not only that. Not only are they here to hear Jesus, they get to eat with Jesus. Because eating in that culture meant that you were fully accepted. Table fellowship meant full acceptance. It wasn't that Jesus just allowed them to come near him and hear. Jesus says, come eat with me, sit with me, enjoy this bread with me. He touches us. He looks at us. He listens to us. So you notice that group. And along with that group, a little distance off, as if there were social distancing before we knew what social distancing was, are the people you do recognize. They're the religious leaders. They're the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. They're the ones that everyone respected. They're the the ones that everyone sort of bowed their heads when they walked by. You knew them because they were always in the front of the synagogues. When they prayed, they prayed in the front, standing up. They were the ones that caused a ruckus or made a racket whenever they gave out almsgiving. And oftentimes, you knew there were holy people because they would often be fasting. Because you knew they were fasting because their faces would be grim. And they would paint themselves in a way that you knew, oh, here they go, fasting again. Because they are righteous people. And here's that group sitting also in a group. Some distance away from Jesus. Because after all, they don't want to be associated with the group that was right near clustering around Jesus. But you notice something else. You notice this group also murmuring and grumbling. Their lips are moving. They're saying something doesn't that guy know? Doesn't Jesus know who these people are that are around him? Did you see that? See that? That's, that? that's that harlot. That's that harlot that works in that part of that house that all these sinners go to. And that tax collector, he he is a Romanizer. He's a you can't go near him because he consorts with Gentiles. He's defiled. And then there's that main person. We know. We know their parents or him must have done something wrong because he was born disabled. Doesn't Jesus know who these people are? Why does he not just let them come, but why does he receive them and welcome them? Doesn't he know that he's going to get grouped with them? That he is going to be associated with them? And now as you enter that house to listen to Jesus, my question to you or a question for you, To consider is, where do you sit? Who do you identify with? Today's parable has been preached upon thousands, if not millions of times. It is one of the most well-known parables. And it has a simple message. And the simple message is that God loves both the sinner and the Pharisee. Let us look at the parable for a moment. Let's examine what Jesus says in this parable. Before we do, I do want to draw your attention briefly to the two preceding parables. Before Jesus tells this parable about the father who had two sons, Jesus tells two short parables. One is about a shepherd who had 100 sheep, and he loses one of them. So he leaves the 99 behind and goes, finds one, and tells us, this is the imagery we get, and I don't know if you've seen this picture of a rugged shepherd with a little lamb over his neck. The Bible actually says he finds the lost sheep, puts it over his shoulder, right? And there's a lot of stories of why he might have done that. And he's coming. And then the climax of that parable, though, is a phrase, he has found the sheep. And so the shepherd says, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me, Right? The point of that parable is, the shepherd isn't just happy, he found something he lost. He isn't just happy like, "Oh, I am so happy that I found this sheep." What he says is, "I am so happy, and I want you to be happy with me." right? Rejoice with me. The second parable is that of a woman who loses a coin. Now, this is really, really relatable. And it, you know, if you ever had like a stack of... 20s, but with inflation, let's say a stack of hundreds, right? You have know, like six $100 bills in your pocket, right? And you, and and somehow you're busy doing something, and you pull it out, and you see three of them missing. Okay, now I am pretty sure. Okay, unless you are filthy rich, all right, and you really don't care, most of us would be like, expletive! I gotta find where I dropped those three bills, right? And you go looking for it. Anyone done this? Okay. Recently at our house, we lost something precious. And I was, I lost it. And I was, pardon my French, crapping in my pants. My father-in-law was kind enough, he went to the trash outside, dug through all the trash and found it. And you know what my reaction was? Uh-huh, happy. If you lost three $100 bills, you would look for it. And when you find it, what is it that you do? You go, oh, good. I found it. You go, ha, 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 I found it. All right. I found it. Especially if you lost it for a while and you thought you would never get it back. You've almost given hope. You find it. You're happy. So people understand this emotion. And this woman also says, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me And then now, for the finale, Jesus says, "There is a father who had two sons." He tells the story to wrap up the sentiment, that this simple message that he wants everyone to hear, He says, "There was a father who had two sons. The younger son said to the Father, "Father, give me my share of the inheritance. I will be mine when you die. I want it now. I can't wait till you're dead." I kind of want you to be debt to me now so that I can get what is mine, which would have been about one-third of the property, because his older brother would receive double what he would normally get. He says, I want what's mine so that I can go out and live my life. And so the father gives the son what he asks. Son gets the money, goes out, squanders it. The word, word here is reckless. And he spends all the money, uses it up, famine comes in on the land, he finds himself without a job, without resources, and he's hungry, he's destitute. He hires himself to work for pig farmers. Now remember, this is a Jewish community, right? Very kosher. And he's sitting there with the pigs, wanting to eat the little pods, these, these carob pods, known to be the food of poor and people and livestock, he's looking at that as if it's filet mignon, like he's, he's that hungry. And then he comes to his senses, he says, at my father's house, even the servants have plenty of food. I will go, I will repent, I will return to my father. And so he does. And as he goes, he recites what he's going to say, all right? Have you all done that Ever? going to apologize to someone and you're kind of practicing what you're going to say. says, practicing, practicing, practicing. Say it over in his head. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's just practicing and practicing. All of a sudden, he sees his father from a long ways and his heart begins to beat. The father sees him. And this is the moment. He's practicing now. I only got about a few, few more minutes before I get to where he is. But all of a sudden, he sees the father rushing towards him, running. Lifting his robe and running to him. And he tackles him and showers him with hugs and kisses. And the first thing the son could say is, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father is not even listening. He says, bring out the best robe put it on him, put a ring, and kill the fattened calf. My son who's dead is alive. Passion, joy. This what what Jesus simply wants people to know is that this joy is exuberance. It's not a. it's not a planned out joy. It's not a it's not a contrived, I gotta be happy kind of joy. It's not the joy where You're kind of not sure if you're happy or not, but you should be because the situation calls for it and you kind of smile, kind of joy. This is just joy overcoming a person. And the son is overwhelmed. They go in and they're celebrating. And the older son hears He's working out in the field. He hears some noise. So he begins to come in. All of a sudden, he really hears there's a party going on. And he asks, he pulls a servant aside and says, hey, hey, what's going on? He says, oh, you didn't hear? Your brother's back. My brother? Yeah, he's back. And your father killed a fattened calf, and he is celebrating. And the brother is miserable. He's angry. And I want you to know this. The the parable most often is associated with the younger brother, the prodigal son, and how much the father loves the prodigal son and is glad that he's back. But really, the parable equally shows the love the father has for the older son. Because he goes out to the older son. Just as he went out to meet the younger son, he goes out to the older son. And he entreats him, he pleads with him, he says, Come, son, join the celebration. And the son is angry, he is bitter because why? Why is the son angry? The son is angry at his father's graciousness, he is offended by his father's mercy. Giving to someone something that they don't deserve. I want you to know this as Christians that when you eventually, as you kind of journey with Christ in this Christian life, the thing that you will find that is often the most offensive thing about God is not his harshness, it's his generosity, it's his seeming abundant mercy to give people what they don't deserve. And it offends our own sense of justice. Because here's the thing. At the end of the day, the younger son and the older son aren't all that different. Because they both come to their father based on what they did or didn't do. The younger son says, I'm no longer worthy. I am unworthy. That means I don't deserve something. Right? That is just as much a... a, value statement about how you think about your father. The son has no capacity to imagine a father who would love him even though he's undeserving. For him, it's all about what he merits. I don't deserve to be your son, but I can be your servant and I will work hard. He still comes to the father even though he's coming back repentant with an expectation that the father is going to treat him as he deserves. The older son, same thing. I've worked for you. I deserve something. I deserve recognition. And in both cases, they miss out on the father's heart, which is love for them. And so what is the point of this parable? Why does Jesus tell this parable? Jesus tells this parable because he wants the Pharisees. Pharisees are asking Jesus, why do you hang out? Why do you hang out with these sinners? Why do you you welcome them? And Jesus says, because my father delights in welcoming back lost people. And that's why. I eat with sinners because my father delights and rejoices when the lost are found. But here, don't miss this. And this is what I want to leave you because we are both the prodigal and the older son at different seasons in our life. That's not the only message Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is, listen, Pharisees you're missing out on the joy of who God is and his heart. You're righteous. You're recognized. People respect you. You have everything together, but you're missing something vitally important, and that is God's heart and joy. He is pleading with the Pharisees. He's not condemning them. He's not saying, you just don't get it. You guys are just snotty, upright, critical, judging people. The reason he tells this parable is he's saying, God is pleading with you. I am pleading with you. Open your heart. God does not treat you as you deserve. God is more gracious than we can ever imagine. And when God saves a sinner, he not only does so, but he does so with joy and gladness. And he's pleading with the Pharisees, come and join the celebration. This is what God is saying to us today. It's not just about helping people come to know Christ. It's not just about being good Christians or doing the right things. It's about rejoicing with the Father. It's about knowing God's heart. And having our hearts aligned with his so that we also rejoice when the lost are found. THMC, what kind of church do you want to be? The world is broken. The world is hurting. And God wants us to share the good news of the love and grace found in Jesus Christ. Because... When God heals and saves, there is joy. And what God wants to give you and me is that joy, is the joy, is the joy. And that is, I believe, the heart of the parable that I hope you are encouraged with and that your heart will also align with God. And not just look at things with a coolness and and kind of a distance, but really allow your heart to celebrate and rejoice when someone comes to God. Let's pray. Father, um, it is our prayer that somehow we would be reminded that you not only save sinners, you not only go and look for the lost sheep or look for the lost coin or welcome the prodigal, but you do so with joy and rejoicing and celebrating. And your word to us today is rejoice with me, T-H-M-C-E-M, rejoice with me, rejoice with me, that the lost are found, that the broken are mended, that sinners are forgiven, and the wayward come home. Rejoice with me, not just in our heads, not just in our confessions, but in our hearts. Let us rejoice that God delights in redeeming the lost.